piece of string walks into a bar and walks up to the bartender. He says, bartender, can I get a drink? Bartender turns around and says, hey, I'm sorry to tell you this, buddy, but we don't serve pieces of string in this establishment. You're going to have to leave. The piece of string was devastated. He went outside and he walked around the side of the building. He went in the alley. He tied himself in knots and he frayed his ends and just tried to make himself totally unrecognizable. And he walked back in the bar. In all the confidence in the world, he sat down at the bar. Bartender turned around and said, hey, can I get you something to drink? Piece of string said, yeah, I'll take a beer. He goes, hey, wait a minute. Aren't you that piece of string that was just in here a couple of minutes ago? And the piece of string said, no, I'm afraid not. It's the Roller Health of Rural Finnish Baseball Podcast. We talk Finnish baseball players from coast to coast, border to border. It's what we've done for 184 episodes. That's not what we've done for 194 episodes. We've done some other stuff. But mostly, let's say mostly we've done vintage baseball players. I am joined by my co-host, my muse, <laughs> my life partner. Your life partner. <laughs> None of that's true in the reality sense of the words, but. He is my dear friend, all the way from the Devil's Lane. It's Columbus, Ohio. It's Rudy Frias, the Swamp Box. Rudy, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, that was a top-notch joke, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for starting off with that. Absolutely. Uh, Rudy, you know how I always make fun of Columbus, Ohio, as a place where when something bad, it always happens first in Columbus. That's what I mean by the Devil's Anus. Oh, yeah. It's funny that you've never come back at me at the fact that I live in Saginaw, Michigan, which is in the top 10 of worst cities to live in in every list that's ever made to mankind. I appreciate that. Well, every every time I've been to Saginaw, I've had an enjoyable experience, and some of the best people I've ever met are from Saginaw. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, The Saginaw Ogles have a great field, don't they? It's right on the river, and... uh, uh, I don't think they can play there anymore, but you could see some fantastic vintage baseball going on between meth deals and the picnic table in the outfield. It was amazing. <laughs> uh, we have a great episode tonight, Illinois-centered uh, episode, and we're going to start it off with uh, the champagne. I don't know if that's right. It could. We're going to ask them, but we're going to go with what I know, which isn't much. The champagne clippers uh of illinois and rudy please introduce our guests Uh, ladies and gentlemen um i feel as excited as y'all because i'm getting to meet these individuals uh, uh for the first time as well uh joining us we have jed willard and doug burgett from the champagne clippers gentlemen welcome to the roller out the barrel show how are you doing this evening doing well great thanks for having us yeah thank you uh, absolutely. We're always excited to hear uh, about new clubs that have formed that are going to go through uh, their inaugural season because we're going to get a lot of information out of you because you had to start somewhere. You had to see this somewhere. You had to be involved somehow. You had to go through a long process to get to where you're going to be. Uh, May 6th. I'm not counting that that practice all everybody play game beforehand. That's not official. That's just for fun. May 6th is your first official match against the Vermilion Vowels, Danville, Illinois. Uh, A lot has gone into the process to get to this point. So uh, gentlemen, which one of you is the captain of the club? 
Ooh, both. Yes. Go captains. Yes. That always works out. So <laughs> there's never a hassle with that. I mean, well, unfinished th- baseball it, works out good. But I mean, I'm think of the Akron right. Black Stockings. I believe they're up to eight to no- eight or nine captains at this point. No, they lost one. They're down to seven. <laughs> one just went down to being a player too much, <laughs> but uh, all right. Well, let's start off with Doug then, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll just go back and forth on the questions here. Uh, Doug, how does this how does this idea in its very infancy uh, get made? Uh, yeah, I think uh, for us, it was it's taken a long time. Um, I I first saw vintage baseballs on I was actually in Michigan uh, on vacation in uh, Saugatuck, Michigan. And we went over to uh, Douglas and saw the Douglas Dutchers play. And this was in 2008, summer of 2008. And I had no idea what vintage baseball was. But um, I was captivated immediately by uh, just the the visual of all of these um, uh, retro players playing. They they actually played on baseball diamond. I I, I you know I didn't know anything about vintage baseball at the time, so um, it was uh, uh, you know Douglas, Michigan, real small town. Um, my wife and I are just walking around, you know, looking at shops and and things, and this baseball game's going on, and I'm. I'm staring at it, wondering what it is. And um, the the way I work is I, I I then go back and start looking things up to try to figure out what this was. And, and you know, so um, then I discover vintage baseball and the Douglas Dutchers and uh, that, that this is a thing. There's a vintage baseball association. And I start looking up teams around the area and um, – you know, wanting to play and was just surprised that uh, uh, maybe disappointed that there just wasn't a team in the Champaign-Urbana area since um, I've lived in Champaign-Urbana most of my life. And I, I thought, you know, this is a community that 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 would be great to have a vintage baseball team. Um, so, yeah, that's that's just kind of how it started for me, Jed. Um, I met Jed through work um, and. Uh, we always kind of geeked out on baseball and um, I started talking to him about this and I think we would have started a team at the time. I mean, I started to get some equipment and just had this concept in my head. Um, But uh, we were both in different stages of of starting families and it kind of got put to the back burner for many years. And then we came back around to it and, 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 um, Played uh, a couple games, um, you know, with some other teams and just just kind of fell in love with it and thought, let's bring this to Champaign-Urbana and um, and yeah, just start a team. So that's that's kind of the history of it. Would you would you say your roster is made up mostly of new talent or would you say that you're borrowing players from other clubs? Well, we we are not trying to borrow players from any other clubs there's some there's some people who have i think played on uh neighboring teams that um may help us out we don't know really they they've kind of played um some of our pickup games last fall and um you know i don't think that they're stepping away from their 
their other teams by any means, but they might come and and help us out. Um, we've kind of formed a close partnership with uh, the Vermilion Vols, and since they have a lot of players from uh, the Champaign-Urbana area, you know, if we don't have very many games in our first season, first so, season, so. Uh, yeah, we we might help them out if they need some some players. They might help us out if if they have you know if we have a game and they're not playing. But um, no, most of our players are players are new players. New players. Uh, Jed, let me ask you a couple of questions. Okay. Uh, question number one: Is it okay if we refer to it as the Champagne Clippers? Champagne. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of because fun names want... for this area um, in the local vernacular, but yeah, champagne would be the the correct way to pronounce it. No, champagne. <laughs> so when you when you win something major for the first time and you have a glass of, you're not having a glass of champagne, you're having a glass of champagne. Uh, <laughs> second question, uh, Jet, how? So you you get this idea of vintage baseball. What are your very initial thoughts of the vintage game and how have they evolved to where you are right now? So for me personally, I had played baseball all growing up and, you know, even played, did the, the rec softball league thing after the fact, um, you know, after. And so I'd been in that scene and kind of knew what that was. It could be really highly competitive and, and cutthroat and things like that. And, and, there's a lot of good about it too, but um, going and seeing vintage games and playing, actually getting to play in them like right out of the gate, you know, kind of getting pulled into a game was really fun and just showed how low of a barrier of entry there was to it. And so that like right out of the gate, just how welcoming it was. It wasn't this uh, thing where like, Oh no, you got to be a part of our team, you know, like officially to get in here. It's like most clubs seem to be really open to getting people out there kind of getting, you know, getting you hooked on it, so to speak. And that was absolutely how it was for me was just getting out there and playing again after, you know, some years of not playing. Cause I've been coaching, you know, my kids and other stuff like that. And so it was kind of getting back out there to play and saying like, okay, like everyone plays to their abilities, right? Like some people are really still really good. Like I'm actually quite amazing. Some of them. And then there's others that maybe aren't quite as good, but like they still play as hard as they can and no one, no one's, you know, riding somebody because they can't make a play or whatever. They're just all cheering each other on. And I mean, just that sense of like everyone doing the best they can and just loving the game. Um, so for me, it's like understanding how open it was for everyone and just how fun and kind of relaxed it was. And I'm a history guy, so I love the history part of it, too, which just all ties in for me. Um So I, whenever I explain it to new people that I'm trying to get out, I, I'm like, it's kind of like a cross between like, you know, almost like back backyard baseball when you were a kid, you know, like there's this almost like this element. That's what it reminds me the most, almost more of than, than the modern game um, is what I tell people. It's kind of like when you were in the backyard with your friends, you know, you might catch a ball off the building and it's an out or something, or, you know, we got the bound out in the vintage game. And so there's, there's a lot of fun quirks to it. And it's just kind of reminds me of that, but that's kind of my evolution with it coming from like this more structured background for a long number of years seeing kind of the more casual, friendly, open environment with vintage ball. That's awesome. Uh, Rudy and I are going to pelt you with advice right now. Here's the first <laughs> bit of advice. Uh, vintage baseball players love vintage baseball from directly after the game until Friday night. Rudy, go ahead. 
hydrate. <laughs> Make sure you have proper <laughs> hydration because it uh, it'll sneak up on you. I want to talk about like what's the uniform looking like because hydrate like. Uh, I oh, play... I'm not done with advice, Rudy. Rudy, what are you doing? You're ruining it. No, I thought we were peppering advice hi- we'll throughout the interview. No, absolutely not. We will talk about uniforms <laughs> in a second. Next piece of advice. When these guys go out there and start doing softball stuff, you got to nip that in the bud and you have to do it immediately <laughs> or it ain't ever going away. Okay? I'll fight you on everything. We don't want to see logos. We don't want to see high fives. Have you talked to your guys about this stuff, by the way? Yeah, fortunately for us, like I've played softball in the past many years, it's been many years ago now, but like most of our players, I mean, where it's not like we've taken a softball team and brought it into vintage ball. So no, well, I don't have honestly um, very much, if any worry about that. Um, And we've been very upfront about that, you know, with anybody that comes in, it's like, this is very relaxed, you know? I mean, that's like what I said too. I'm like, the relaxed part of it is the draw, right? Like, yeah. you want to go play hyper competitive and and do the softball thing, go play in the softball league, really. Um, but yeah, so now we're we're very aware that that's a thing, and to to address it as such, kind of out of the gate. So, but our our core team isn't, you know, it's not like a softball team coming into to vintage ball. So, and they, you know, the pickup games that we we had at the end of last year, because we started at you know in the off season to to kind of get this going and. We had a couple of pickup games in the fall last year, and those were just opportunities to get people acclimated to the little rules of of the game and, and things like that. So um, we had good turnouts for those, and and uh, um, that's what we're going to use our pickup game for this year is to get everybody out there and get them get them acclimated. But it'll it'll, it'll be a learning process throughout the the first season for sure. All right, Rudy, you're a captain of a vintage baseball club give them another piece of advice to how to rein in their players. And then you can talk to them about their uniforms. I'm, I'm not, I'm not the best person to give advice. <laughs> talk to uh, them about the white shoes, would you? Oh my gosh. Look y'all. If you have eight guys show up and they're in black <laughs> shoes and then one of them shows up and heaven forbid, there's a logo on his shoes. I would recommend you let the individual play, but uh, uh, just so I'm, Barrel, I don't know if you gentlemen know this. I have been a pariah in the community for wearing white cleats. I um, I started it a few years ago. Uh, it was an act of kindness. I had a spare set of cleats that I gave away, and the only cleats I had left were all white. They were all white. You can't see a logo, and listen. Listen, listen, you're telling the story right, but you're really not telling it with the right emotion. Rudy Frias gave his cleats to somebody so they could play, and he wore white cleats that day. And there was quite an uproar about it. Well, you gentlemen should know it's historically accurate. They actually had white shoes back then. So it's in many pictures. So he's doing nothing wrong. However, because it causes such an uproar, Rudy just likes to throw on the white cleats now once in a while, yeah, just pretty much, just to get people just, as a reminder. Just, just pretty much, it's okay. Shoes, sh- shoes don't make the man, guys. That's the that's the moral of the story. Yes, it's 
It's true. It's the uniform that makes the man. So please uh, tell Rudy about your uniforms. You're such a pro. You're such a pro. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that we're trying to do with uniforms is keep them. Uh, we have kind of a, a tiered approach. Um, so we, we give some guidance if you're looking to come out and spend zero money and just want to throw something together. Um, we have... You know, if you want to spend maybe 25 bucks, here's here's what you can do. If you want to go full in, here's what you can do. So we try to document this, you know, on our website and and point people there and just say, hey, look, do what do what's comfortable. And um, that that's just, you know, to get things off the ground this first season, see what we got. And we'll probably always do that to some degree because we never want to have it be um inaccessible for people you know just starting i think that's one of the the main things that uh you know somebody doesn't want to come on and, and have to and maybe they can't you know spend a lot of money on a uniform right right out of the gate um uniforms are are the, some of those uniforms are so cool looking and and um we'd like to evolve ours you know a little bit but we're starting out pretty simple and um we just have some some navy blue pants and kind of a gray uh buttoned up flannel shirt and we have a little navy um um tie that we okay. that we wear and uh Jed's actually wearing the the navy hat that we that we have so um it's uh it's a real simple uniform we picture you know, just a, a bunch of folks in, in the Midwest throwing this thing on in the 18, late 1850s and going yeah. out and them to a field. So that's where we're starting. That That is a an, a fantastic approach. I mean, I, I can relate 100% because uh, honestly, uh, for a while there, half of my team, they were dressed based off uniforms from 10 years ago that my my family had worn my brothers and my father our old like shirts we have a shirt that is almost 20 years old in our collection um you you want to make it accessible and inclusive as as soon as possible and then you build that interest and then after you get that investment i love what you guys are doing this is such a smart idea that you know then you start being like all right hey Maybe we do as a club want to look into new uniforms. I mean, I, I totally, totally get that. That's such a great idea. Did um was there any research done as far as like was this the concept of your uniform, the look of it? Is it based off of anything or is this just uh coming straight from from you? Yeah, we looked at we looked at a lot of uh uh pictures of teams at that at that time you know read a lot of material about knickers and when they started to really come into play and um you know again just, just i mean jed mentioned it that the we're both into baseball history and and you know geek out on that so you know looking back and reading reading books on early baseball that's kind of our jam and um so yeah, we not nothing. Uh, we we did a lot of research, and and Jed can talk more about this because uh, he kind of initiated. But you know, just to find the name of the team and and find local baseball stuff. But it was really hard. We didn't find any any early pictures. I'm kind of looking forward to reading uh, Bob's book that you're going to talk to later. Um, and Je yeah, Jed's already started it. But um, yeah, so 
there Jed's taken some photos in there and and sent them to me, you know, because that's, that's basically what we do. It's just like, you know, take photos in books and pass them on to one another. And, um, you know, just, just, yeah, it, it we want to be historically accurate, but the thing, like I said, about just picturing some Midwest folks going out to a field, uh, the, the, the beauty of it is when, when Jed and I have put this uniform on and gone out, uh, Jed has mentioned, you know, a couple of times that it's just regular clothes, you know, you know, so, unlike a, a fancy you know baseball uniform with knickers and baseball socks and and everything that you can wear this out if you wanted to you know like on a, oh. on a friday night when you're really wanting to go out and look 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 spiffy yeah um, you know but it, it's just it you know it's just regular clothes and um i think that's that's the beauty of it is it it, it works for both scenarios you know nice uh, if you guys are looking for any information uh, about the Champagne Clippers, uh, go to www.champagneclippers.org. That's C-H-A-M-P-A-I-G-N. That spells champagne. Not the right way. Uh, not the way I'm saying it, but, uh, and then C-L-I-P-P-E-R-S.org. Uh, you can find out everything. They're apparently on every social media platform that exists. So you can go check it out. I do believe there's a picture of you two gents in the uniforms. Uh, am, am I correct on that? I saw that somewhere. Yes, on on, yes, on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. And Facebook. Damn, I'm good. Uh, you are. Okay. And uh, so you can uh, go see them. Uh, everybody, four points all season if you call them the Champagne Clippers. Uh, we appreciate you guys coming in uh and and spending a little time with us i uh, hope your season goes well uh hope we see you out there somewhere somehow uh we don't see a lot of the illinois guys but that doesn't mean we can't in the future i do see on your schedule on july 15th uh you are playing the rock springs ground squirrels home team of our next interview of robert sampson so uh robert says he's the slowest man in vintage baseball can either one of you they're both, they're both nodding. They're both nodding. So there was actually a race, um, <laughs> you know, this last fall that 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 is on record, I believe, on social media. So Bob, I Bob is speaking the truth as he often, you know, as he almost always does, and he's uh, I think he's accurate in that statement. So uh, it's a really there's a really funny video out there. I think it might be on the Vols, uh, Vermillion Vols social media about Bob's race. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, we, we love Bob. Actually, Bob's been a great help to us um, getting started um, because we did some research into, you know, our club name, which ties to the Champaign area in the 1886 year when they officially started. And as you know, Bob will, I'm sure, talk to you guys about how difficult it was to find history prior, you know, prior to to that um, until baseball became like a regular thing in the 18, like almost a daily occurrence in the paper in the 1870s. But um, yeah, Bob really excited and Bob's a great guy. Um, so I'm sure he'll give you a fantastic uh, bit of information on Illinois clubs. That's amazing. All right. Thank you. Thank you guys for stopping by. We appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks and, for uh, having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. You guys are great. Yeah. Uh, take it easy. Uh, well, I look forward to hearing a, uh, an update next uh this season on how things are going so best of luck guys yeah we'd love to come back on and give you give you an update of how it actually turns out <laughs> all right book it we'll talk to you in november all right yes. sounds good see you see guys right. take care take care
Uh, Rudy, you know what time it is right now? It. What time is it? Little hands says it's time to rock and roll. It's time for a roller out the barrel. News break. This is your roller out the barrel news break for Sunday, June 17, 1866. I'm Jonathan McLean. Dateline, New York. Get on the phone to Harry in New York because we have a lot of games to unpack today. The unions of Morrisania let off with a nail-biter win against the Eureka Baseball Club of New Jersey. Season's champions had their hands full as the Eureka struck and fielded well by skunking the unions in the bottom of the fourth and then scoring eight in the fifth to take a 15-7 lead. But thanks to 10 runs in the seventh, just after whitewashing the New Jersey club, the score stood 22-19 in favor of the unions going into the ninth. The Eurekas put up seven, but the Morrisania bunch would score six and take the win in a three-hour, 25-minute affair by a score of 28-26. In another New York versus New Jersey scuffle, the Irvingtons gave a very handsome whipping to the Brooklyn Atlantics in a four-hour slugfest by a final score of 23-17. In a match of the second nines, the Mutual second nine beat the Excelsior second nine 50-12 in a game that lasted just under two and a half hours. Every player for the Mutual scored at least four runs. Mr. Reed, the Mutual's catcher, had a clean game by registering no outs and scoring eight runs himself. In other news, a Mr. Charles Dunlop has been arrested in Ohio for poisoning horses and then offering to cure them as a horse doctor. For those horses, Mr. Dunlop was clearly the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm Jonathan McLean, <laughs> and this has been your Roller the Barrel News Break. <laughs> <laughs> that that made me very happy. It it's the best thing that we do and we don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could just listen to a show full of those. Uh hey Rudy, is our guest with us yet? Our guest is here and we're letting him in now. Uh let's bring him in. Our guest is a member of the Rock Springs Ground Squirrels, but he's so much more than that. Joining us is Bob Sampson. We Bob Sampson, can you hear us? I can hear you. I'm having, uh, I don't know if you can see me or not. N not yet. Uh, I see. No, keep working on that, but we can talk while you're working on it. Okay. Oh. Uh, we, we had Kevin Mench on as, as an interview last year. And uh, we were all excited because we had former major league player Kevin Mench on and he could never get his video to work. It's almost like we didn't have proof he was here. Yeah. <laughs> we just yeah. the audio. There's no real proof Kevin Mitch ever spoke to us. Oh. <laughs> oh, Bob, look at all those books in the background. I feel dumber already. That's Have you read every single one of those books? Oh, yeah, that's that's about uh, that's about a third of my original library. I had to get rid of the, the rest when we moved. So, but I was a 
I was a, I'm, tr I'm a trained historian. So <laughs> that's like uh, carpenters have uh, saws and hammers and we have too many books. <laughs> you say you're a trained historian. You don't get, you're not trained at being a historian. You've just, you've just taken in so much information. You're like <laughs> a professional historian. Well, yeah, we got, I got, I got to run through the traces in grad school. So they uh, sort of like a boot camp for historians, so, but thank you. We got, so we got, so we brought Robert Sampson on because I talked to him back in uh, his late fall or winter time. He's got a new book coming out. It's where well, it's actually out right now, but not on Amazon. You're pre-ordering on Amazon right now. Oh, that, it's, that's uh, right. Oh, well, you can get it. Uh, uh, beginning on March 30th through April 1st, you can get it for half price through the U of I press. But you've got to know that yeah, I should have looked this up. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, code, I'll, I'll try and find that here at some point. Well, they don't run the world, Bob. Amazon does. So people will just go to Amazon and pay full price. Uh, Ballas, Deadbeats, and Muffins. This is uh, a story of the history of Illinois uh, baseball from the beginning. Uh, I did want to mention, Robert, before we get into that book, and like I said, we talked earlier and we scheduled this interview to happen about this time because the book's coming out. We didn't want to go too early with it and have everyone uh, lose their thoughts. But there's also another book of yours on Amazon from 2003, and that's the John L. O'Sullivan and his times book. And I just want you to know there's only one copy left. So can you do something? Can you get more copies on there? It's like 44 bucks. There's one copy left. Hopefully we need to replenish. <laughs> oh, it's gone up and uh, I'm not getting any royalties from it. So I, I don't know where, <laughs> who, who got the money from all those books. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's interesting to know. They're down to one book. You could probably get it from a used place, but was that the $44 price? Yeah, it was like a, it was a, it's not a paperback. I think it was a hardcover. It's our, uh, I'm they're not all sure. Hardcover. But is, when there's only one left on Amazon, is that the equivalent of like going to a garage sale and finding your own book on a table and you're like, oh man, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Ballas, Deadbeats, and Muffins in the Illinois area. Uh, let's, Robert, let's give everybody a little bit of background uh, about you. You fill in the gaps here. You were a newspaper reporter for 12 years. Mm -hmm. what was your beat uh i began like a lot of uh like a lot of people as a sports writer but i only lasted about um, eight or nine months in that and i became a, a a city hall reporter then i went to a bigger paper and covered various things uh including politics and i was a columnist uh the last right the last seven or eight years i was at that newspaper in decatur illinois so you left newspaper reporting many, many years before newspapers died. I had good time. Uh, good time. You were, well, you were 20 years, you were 20 years before it really started to die. Wouldn't you say the newspaper starts? Yeah. Back. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and you know, the, the, it was amazing because it had, it happened so fast. I don't think anybody saw it coming. If you would ask somebody, even like in 1992 or 93 or 94, you know, is within 10 years, are your jobs going to start to disappear? And they would have laughed at you. You know, they, they were an institution. 
and it's sort of sad. Well, it is sad in many, many ways, but I, uh, you know, I was fortunate to get out when I did. Yeah. Back then you had to be creative with your words and, uh, and nowadays you have to be creative with your TikTok videos. Yes. It's the same thing. <laughs> uh, then in, uh, 83 to 85, you become, uh, involved with Richard Durbin, who's a, who was at the time a congressman. How do you, how do you make that transition? What was that like? It was, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, you have a certain idea of it or what it's going to be like. And, and then you start doing it and discover, holy cow, <laughs> this is a whole different world. It's not like on TV, you know, things like the West wing where they're all, they all seem to be discussing, you know, big high powered issues all the time. And they got, they were in these nice offices and running around and, you know, all that. It uh, It's hard, hard work. Maybe the hardest work I ever did in my life in terms of just every day. Because those, those were actually 12, 13, 14 hour days, five days a week. Uh, and uh, it was great working for him. He was he was on the rise at that point. Uh, but I think in retrospect, I had probably gone there too late, uh, too old. I had, we had two little kids, two little kids, and it's very difficult to, uh, you know, to have a family life. And so when I got the opportunity to come back to Illinois, uh, I took it. Uh, and there was no, uh, I still had very good relations with him and uh, don't seem much anymore, obviously. But it was a good experience. It's one of those things that I'm glad I did. And I'm glad I eventually did something else. It certainly gives one a whole different uh, idea an appreciation for the political system and how it can work when it works. I don't believe you that it's worked uh, ever. Uh, 85, 85 through 09, you have here that you were a writer, but also you were a public information specialist. Is that just not double wording for trained historian? Well, I wasn't a trained, well, I wasn't a trained yet. <laughs> I was a... Uh, uh, I was basically what we might call public relations. But when you're in, you know, when you're in a university where you're not public relations, you're public information. <laughs> so I wrote for I wrote articles for the College of Agriculture and the Cooperative Extension Service. Uh, and the, it was a good job. I enjoyed it. I had had good colleagues. I learned a little bit about agriculture, uh, not enough to trade in uh, stocks or commodities or anything, but a little bit. And the great thing about that was, is that the University of Illinois at the time, and I think it's still true, if you're a full-time employee, you can go to graduate school for free. Now, you ha you can't, you know, it's like a, a certain number, you only have a certain number of courses each semester. Uh, and so I did that sort of out of self-defense, because in a university, you know, the entry level is not a bachelor's degree. The entry level is a master's. I didn't have a master's. So I got that, and then I kept on going. Uh, so And plus, I really got to uh, work with some great people in the Department of History, uh, some real giants uh, at the time. And so anything good I do, they get credit for it. And anything bad I do, it's my own fault. <laughs> so That's the way it should be, I guess. <laughs> yes, yes. You uh, it, you did the John L. O'Sullivan uh, book in 2003. Yes. Are you getting an echo off me talking, Rudy? Rudy, am I echoing? Yep. That's not cool. Uh, <laughs> I was going to go on with it. Uh, and tell everybody just a quick uh, 
a summary of what that book was about in 2003. Well, that was my dissertation. And John L. O'Sullivan, if he's known at all, and he's probably not known by hardly anybody, uh, maybe in maybe at some point, you know, in school, you came across the term manifest destiny. Uh, yep. which was, that was back in the 1840s. And he was the fellow who popularized that. He was a newspaper editor, a magazine editor, uh, was a friend, probably one of Nathaniel Hawthorne's closest friends. A uh, lot of interesting things. He also uh, came within a couple of votes. He served two terms in the New York State Legislature. He came within about two or three votes of abolishing capital punishment uh, in New York in the 18, you know, 1840s. Uh, so he had a lot of interests uh, and so had a essentially sort of a tragic life because somebody once said of him, he had a positive genius for lost causes. If he saw a lost cause and walking down the street, he'd run up to it and jump on top and ride it over the cliff. Uh, so he ends up in the, as a Confederate agent in the in Europe during the Civil War. He has, you know, great talent for picking the losing side and uh, then sort of dropped from sight. Uh, but lived until 1895 uh, in obscurity. Uh, from the years 90 until 2020, it says here that you've uh, traveled around to various colleges and universities uh, teaching Irish history, labor history, English history, and baseball history. I want you to tell me one thing that encompassed all four of those. That you could teach in every one of those classes, and it was it was still relevant. Well, that's easy, the Irish class, because I had a whole I had a whole lecture on on early baseball, say uh, turn of the century baseball, eighteen nineties, uh, early teens. Because there's a, actually a book written. It's called the Emerald Age in Baseball, or something like that, which the Irish were sort of the dominant ethnic group in baseball. And of course, if you talk about Ireland, you got to talk about England because England's the oppressor. Uh, and then the Irish are a big factor in U.S. history, uh, the Irish immigrants. And so, you know, that's if I had to say, OK, what one course sort of wrapped everything up? And then, of course, I should add labor their their part. The early labor leaders are Irish. Uh, in fact, at one time you could throw a, uh, a rock at the names of any union president. and It would be an Irish name uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, so that was my uh, that was probably the, when I put it all together in that class. Of all the things that I came across uh, about you, this next piece is the most interesting, which probably isn't the greatest thing to say when you're trying to get a book out there. But you published an article called uh, Fields of Battle, the uh, mm. problem of baseball playing space in mm. the post-Civil War. I want to know everything about this. Uh, I want you to uh, tell me about this article, and I want and I want you to send me this article. I want to I want to read this entire piece, but please yes. give us a summary of that article. Okay. Well, it was a it was a big problem, a major problem, and some uh, teens were literally thrown out of town. In fact, I'm sitting here in the basement in Bloomington, Illinois, and Bloomington in that period, 1865 to 1869 or so, was probably one of the top three teams in Illinois. And city council uh, passed a resolution uh, one night saying we uh, prohibit the playing of baseball within the city limits. Uh, so they were tossed out. They had to go across the, the uh, city uh, limits to have a field. Uh, 
that was the most uh, radical example of it. But, you know, in general, we have to, this is sort of hard for us to comprehend today because in a place like Columbus or your, your town up in Michigan, you can go out the door and probably, you know, walk a few blocks and see a public park, right? They're all over the place. There wasn't any public parks in the 1860s in Illinois. Sure. The closest thing to a public park would be the courthouse square. Where they had to put fences up to keep the, the cattle and hog cattle and hogs and, and uh, horses out of. And that was that was a park. Uh, so there was a real problem with, with many of these teams finding places to play. And some of them were, you know, were not good. There's one in Rockford. Uh, which uh, somebody later described as as having more uh, uh, more uh, roughs and traps uh, than a respectable golf course. I mean, they they had creeks that ran through them. People could fall into the creeks chasing a ball. There were trees everywhere. Uh, so uh, that was uh, that was one of that was the second article I wrote before the book addressing that because it was a that was a big problem all over the place. Uh, and interestingly enough, though, just uh, again, I'm in Bloomington. You go about a, you go about 70 miles to the uh, southwest. You have Springfield, Illinois, in which the whole power structure of that town got behind baseball. And every time you turned around, some rich guy was donating land uh, for kids to play, you know, these young men to play baseball on. And the best example was something that sounds more like the late 19th, early 20th century, when they're building places like Forbes Field in Pittsburgh or uh, Scheib Field in, in Philadelphia, there it was at the end of a, a transportation line, a horse railway. And so these guys, these power uh, power barons in Springfield, this Republican, one's a Democrat, they uh, own this horse railway which is sort of like a trolley that is pulled by horses so that at the end of the line they've got this big area which is you know got meadows and stuff well how can we increase ridership on our line and make some use of this stuff maybe even charge people to get into it and so they create railway park and uh, that becomes uh the major baseball field in springfield in the uh mid 1860s so you have sort of the a combination there of political power, of capitalism, and baseball. Not the last time <laughs> you're going to see that combination uh, in America. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Email me your address and I'll, I'll get one to you. Uh, absolutely. I'm going to do that. No doubt about that. that. I found that to be fascinating. It's something that I think when you're in the vintage community and you think about what Finnish baseball actually looked like back in the 19th century. These are things that cross your head, but you don't really think about them. And you don't really hear stories about the issues of where to play. Uh, we just play and we just, we know they played and we just move on. It, it almost, it almost makes you feel like clubs that are playing with certain on, on certain fields with certain impediments like say trees or yeah. i have played on a field with a creek running through the outfield before it are almost more historically accurate that's fascinating yeah and that would have been historically accurate i mean nothing that they played on in that period in illinois at least from 1865 to 70 
we would not recognize it necessarily as a, ball, as a baseball field. It certainly didn't have a skinned infield, didn't have a grass, it was tall, you know, and there might be holes in it. It might be, you know, uh, uneven. There might be trees, uh, creeks. And I think we've probably played on that same field, Rudy. There's two of them in Indiana, Grinder Field, which has the, but yes. then there was one up by, uh, up in northwestern Indiana that the left fielder had to go across a bridge to play left field because <laughs> there was this, and you know, so, and there was a, there was some sort of a shed in on the right field line and then the field sloped down. So the right fielder couldn't see a ball coming down the right field line. So somebody had to yell, you know, Oh, there's a ball coming your way. Uh, that was probably a very accurate field. Uh, but we didn't know it. We just, you know, we had a long afternoon there. <laughs> Very true. You know, there's a, there's a lot of argument about sliding in the 19th century, and, and it's always a hot topic, and we don't need to get into it, Bob. But I want to throw this at you. These guys are just looking for a place to play. They find a place they can play, and they look at it, and they go, okay, but no sliding. Or, you know, because of what the field was, uh, is it possible that sliding was a thing, but the field conditions actually determined whether they were doing it? That might have been a factor. Uh, I can give you a real quick Cliff's Notes version of this. Because <laughs> in, in my research in Illinois, and I, I must have looked at hundreds of thousands of game stories. Sliding was never mentioned in any game story. There was not there was not a statistical category, but one can speculate that it was probably happening because we have one reason we have these double digit scores. But about fifty years later, in the recollections, I found two recollections of old ball players, and they talked about it because uh, in this context that. The catcher, you know, as they do in vintage baseball, you play way back. And so some of the good teams started moving the catcher up, which would have been a real dangerous thing in those days, simply because it would give them more of an advantage. But I don't two teams, two or three teams in Illinois that did that left a record. So they may have some games they may have been sliding, some games they may not have, and it may be one of those unanswered mysteries that we're never going to figure out that's the old game now, the whole modern game let's let's don't go down that road yeah uh you are yeah. a member of the rock springs ground squirrels you yes. told me that you are the slowest man in vintage baseball we confirmed that with the champagne clippers gentlemen that yes. were on just before you yes uh, they did concur that you are the slowest man in vintage baseball. They said there's an actual video of a race. Is this true? Yes. Yeah. Last uh, last fall in uh, Danville. I'm you know, I'm I'm not going to tell you I'm slow, but I played at Muffin Meadow in July of 1992, and I'm still <laughs> trying to get to first base. <laughs> I, I, you just triggered a memory, a visceral, a very visceral memory for me. I was at that game. Oh, okay. Have they called me safer out yet? I... <laughs> They're still waiting. <laughs> okay, I was going as fast as I could. Uh, yeah, no, I am. Well, I think I'm probably starting to get some competition, but 
I'm close to becoming a stationary object anyway. So it's all it's all moot at this point. Uh, yes, you refer to yourself as one step away from stationary. Yes. So yeah. there's a. What is your? Uh, I don't have it here in front of me. What is your vintage baseball nickname? I was afraid you were going to ask that. Yeah, uh, Droopy Drawers. <laughs> we some names, some names. You yeah, just know there's a story. Yeah. Yes, and I prefer not to put that story, Bob. <laughs> I, I feel like I, I feel like a moniker uh, such as that. There is no story that needs to be told. It, it, that's that's it, a good. I like that. I like that's. I'm going to stick to that from now on. <laughs> when you went and played against the Muffins in your first match, I believe that was 1992. Uh, you were on a club from Decatur. Uh, did you notice how they all had belts? They're all had belts. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> oh, we we were impressive. We we thought, you know, we thought, what the heck is this thing? And these guys come out in these gray pants and red, and they got that little tie on, and and we <laughs> said, oh, this this is gonna be easy. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna win this game. And I don't know, nine innings later, we had one run, no. and they had twenty eight or thirty five <laughs> or something like that. And uh, that was a great experience. I I, I, I love that program. There, I've been, I miss uh, I miss Muffin Meadow. So sometimes when I come across a baseball historian like yourself, I always ask them what came first, the history or the baseball. In your case, it's obvious the history came first. How did you come across the actual reincarnation of vintage baseball? Uh, again, uh, the Cliff Notes version. Uh, I had heard about, even around 1992, I'd heard about a fellow indicator who had, had gone through the old newspapers uh, from that time, 1867, and he had had a little a paragraph he copied out about this the the grand tournament of the western states which there were more words in the title than there were the actual teams that actually show up to play in it but that's another story anyway the whole thing almost fell apart because of several different arguments that occurred during the thing so i'm thinking well boy what was going on there so i said well you know this might be like an might make an interesting uh, or something i'll just poke around there so i ended up doing it on those <clears throat> on the team from decatur team from bloomington team from chicago team from Pena. those were the main one the main ones involved in it and that was called uh uh, uh this birth pangs of early baseball in illinois uh oh yeah the spirit of discord arose uh, or, so i got that done and then i'm thinking okay do i want to maybe i could go on with this somehow and then it hit me, well, you know, you can't do it with these four or five teams because you're talking about a state, you know, it's one of the longest states in the country, you know, it goes from the Mississippi River all the way up to, you know, uh, Lake Michigan and Wisconsin. So you got to look at them all. That's when I probably should have said, wait a minute, maybe it's a good time to work on my speed on the base pads or something and devote it to that. But I didn't. I went ahead. So that meant very quickly, you got you got to look at every. You have to find whatever evidence you can of every team that played in Illinois. And there turned out to be there was over a thousand of them. Most of them were outside of Decatur. Uh, and how you do that, you get, maybe you remember from uh, being in a library, they had these big old things. They're called microfilm readers. Oh, yeah. And we put that newspaper. And for uh, again, short story, I was lucky I had I had easy access to that. But it took about almost 10 years 
to go through that stuff. But, you know, the thing about doing history is you answer one question and in the process create five more. Mm. Every time I answer the question, well, okay, that's what happened in Bloomington. But what was it like in Rockford or what was it like in Quincy or, or Cairo or somewhere else, you know, uh, different parts of the state? And then finally, after I got through those newspapers, I had a fairly good idea uh, what it, what had happened and why it sort of it peaked as like a social phenomena between about 1865 and about 1868. It was like trying to think of what you know. You guys are too young, but, but back in the 1950s, there was something called the hula hoop. <laughs> the whole country went nuts about hula hoops. Uh, how, and, how young do you think we are for crying out loud? <laughs> yeah, the hula hoop, yeah. Everybody looks It young preceded the pet rock. Yeah. 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 So, but it was, you know, everybody. So it was something everybody was talking about. They didn't know much about it. And it was sort of like the latest new thing. And so you had hundreds of people going to these ball games to watch their local team and their uniforms. And that, that's a whole, you know, that, that was a whole other thing. Uh, and then it sort of started to fade away. Now, it never dies out, but that initial public fascination with just the game itself and the pageantry and all that, that just dissipates. And then bad repute, the adult clubs, I mean, these were the guys that were 18 into their early 20s. They die out by the end of the period. They're gone except for except for Rockford, Rockford four cities, which, you know, becomes, that's Albert Goodwill Spalding. Well, I like to say he's one of those guys that the more you can learn about, the more you hate him. Uh, <laughs> you know, you can look that up for yourself. Uh, well, why? Why did these things go away? So over as these clips, you know, as these notes start to pile up and you can't see them, but there's still there's several uh, drawers full of them here. It becomes apparent that a number of problems develop. Teen. Uh, uh, People are fighting about the rules. There's, you know, there's, there's one case we have a, we have a, a mini riot after a game. <laughs> uh, two teams, uh, you know, and their supporters start duking it out. Uh, people start yelling at the umpires, that, which, well, that's so well. Well, that's that was new then. You know, the umpire was a figure of authority, and you were never players or spectators were never supposed to say anything. Well, all of a sudden now. Uh, they're yelling at the umpires and questioning their decision and calling them crooks. And so that initial fascination fades in the light of that. There's also gambling and other problems as well. Uh, so that's, you know, that's sort of where I ended up at. You know, you made reference to how there was uh, many, many bin, uh, clubs in the Illinois area uh, until, until it kind of died off. How many clubs would you say are in the Illinois area right now? Oh, you mean vintage clubs or just regular yes, vintage clubs, clubs that are currently vintage clubs that are currently scheduling matches? Do you have an idea of approximately how many? Uh, 10. Uh, that would be my ballpark. No, no, no pun intended. My ballpark figure 10. At one time, there would have been a few more. Uh, the St. Louis teams are sort of in trouble now. Uh, a lot of teams out here are because of an aging aging rosters uh one time we had several teams on the eastern side of mississippi river you know you know it was uh Eston, belleville uh, belleville still there but all the rest of the ones on the east side are gone 
And we had, I think, at one time, five teams in St. Louis. Now we effectively have about two in St. Louis property. What do you find is the biggest problem for recruiting younger people out there in that area? They don't have time to play. Uh, we're seeing more people who aren't, you know, the the five-day, you know, 40-hour week uh, for a lot of reasons, and sadly, I think, has disappeared. Uh, or people have to work on weekends. And so that, or they have young families, which, you know, that's, we always had that. I mean, you know, Rudy's from a baseball family. He knows about that. Yeah. But I think now it's just, they just, they can't do it. And the older guys, you know, like me and people younger than me, you transition out after a while. So I think that's the, and the other thing, and you guys would appreciate this, somebody willing to step up and run the darn thing. Oh. At the end of the day, that's probably the biggest factor that, you know, people burn out. <laughs> yes. And yeah. nobody else wants to do it. And so it doesn't get done. Uh, yeah, that's actually a tr uh, something we're going through in the Midwest right now, Michigan and Ohio. Uh, Michigan, Ohio probably has somewhere around 70 teams combined. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's usually about four or five canceled matches a weekend uh, every week. Uh, so it's not that great when you hear that number 70. But, uh, uh, yeah, we, all, we, we have a hard time with people wanting to take over the reins. Uh, you know, people change like Rudy, Rudy's a perfect example right in front of us. Captain of the Columbus Capitals. Yeah. Uh, his life is different now <laughs> than it was when he took over the reins of the captain of the Columbus Capitals and yeah. children and wives. And, yeah. you know, not a lot of us know this, but some wives out there like their husbands and she, and no. he has one of them. Rudy's <laughs> <laughs> baseball player's wife likes her husband. Oh, yeah. So everybody on the team has, uh, you know, everybody has new involvement. Uh, kids' schedule when they get to a certain age of activities and everything is just crazy, and and the parents will do it, and so you run out of time there. Uh, selling it to a younger generation can be difficult because uh, they're sissies. Whoa, did it what? No, we heard you. Because they don't get it, I think is what I should have said. And, uh, no. uh, you know, it's hard to find, like, in the 1880s games on the East Coast, finding somebody to play catcher in those games, well, that's hard. Yeah. And, I don't it'd be hard for me. <laughs> you know? Well, another thing we have, too, is that uh, maybe you've noticed this in Ohio or, or in Michigan, uh we really sort of, when we were getting younger players, we sort of had to keep an eye on it because, you know, they come in off of this, off the softball fields and, and they think they're, they think they're Pete Rose. Oh. <laughs> you can't do that. I mean, that, oh. you know, I've seen, I, I know one team I won't mention that actually threw a couple people off because they just, they couldn't housebreak them. You know, they were just, at, but, you know, so if you have those standards, you just can't take everybody and, uh, or if you do, you know, and I could, I could mention, you know, some teams that that I've known over the years that, you know, had about eight or nine of them and nobody <laughs> wants to play them. You know, it's not worth it. Well, here's the difference in the mentality of 19th century and today. 
in the 19th century baseball, you could say, hey, uh, we need you to uh, fix your pants or tuck your shirt in or whatever. And the guy would go, okay. If you say that to somebody nowadays, yeah. now you've got an enemy and they don't like you and they want to go to a different vintage baseball team or they're going to start their own <laughs> vintage baseball team or that. that uh, it's just... Uh, we just have a different mentality nowadays and uh, that comes up. But Robert, I have, I have talked to you about a lot of different things, but let's get to what we're really here for. It's the book about to be released on Amazon. He said, you can go get it somewhere else for half price, but that's not what we do society. Uh, <laughs> you can pre-order it on Amazon. It's uh, Ballas, Deadbeats, and Muffins. And there's more to that title. I don't know. I'm going to have Bob tell you. Tell us the correct title of the book and tell us what it's about. Okay. Well, Ballas is what they call baseball players. And there's lots of references in the newspapers at the time. You know, uh, uh, Centralia's Ballas. They're going to go over to Ashley and play the Deadbeats. And the Deadbeats was that the only one, I only found one team with the name of Deadbeat, and that was Ashley, a uh, little place in the middle of nowhere. It's barely there now. Uh, and at that time, Deadbeat was sort of the slang for somebody who was unreliable. You know, sort of, uh, you couldn't depend on it. Uh, it's also slang for a uh, uh, thief. <laughs> Maybe <they> were, <laughs> yeah. And then Muffins, you know, we goes uh, around finish baseball, uh, um, these they had these muffin games, and that's the, what they would uh, purposely put together teams of you know overweight people, uh, people who were too thin, uh, people who were lawyers or doctors and never played the game before. And the people loved to turn out for those. They just loved that stuff because these guys were obviously just playing for fun. They had no skill whatsoever. They would have special rules, like they would one one case there'd be a a bucket of beer at each base so they could they could rest between you know between bases and uh you know they if somebody weighed over 200 pounds they got extra time to run to <laughs> and they would publish these rules so that was one of the things titled uh and we have a lot in the book about the muffins game now peter i should give credit peter morris who's one of your michigan uh compatriots brilliant writer brilliant historian he's the guy that sort of rescued those games in his book, uh, but didn't we have fun about that whole period of transition from the amateur game to the professional game? Uh, so that's that's where the title comes from. What a gentleman uh, pubbing somebody else's book. Uh, the Peter Morris book is is pretty much the title we give to all new vintage baseball players of read this book. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it's I would like say the. Yeah, if I was start, if if I if I had dictatorial powers and I was the commissioner of the vintage baseball association, I re, I would require every team to have a copy and maybe get extra copies and make their players read one of these two books, uh, Peter Morris's "But Didn't We Have Fun," and then Jim Tootle's uh, "Vintage Baseball." Uh, you know, you if you got everything you need to know, and if you want to go beyond that, you can go beyond that. But I mean, those two books, especially Morris, is just so so good. And Toodle is very good too. He has a different approach. He's talking about modern vintage baseball. Mm. You can get by with those and go a long, long way. Uh, you brought up something about a bucket of beer at every base. Now, here's the thing: I uh, I was the organizer of a vintage baseball festival in Michigan. 
What yeah. did we call it, Rudy? It was the Oh, come on now. Church. Don't don't now now you're selling yourself short, buddy. I, it was one of the premier vintage baseball events and festivals in the Midwest. It was the Michigan Vintage Baseball Festival. And with the second that he said a bucket of beer at every base, did you see my face light up? Light up. So you're selling me short, Rudy. It was the largest vintage, vintage baseball festival that's ever happened. Two years running. Thank you. Uh, ever in the entire United States. But who's keeping score? Um, yeah, so we would do, Bob, on Friday night, we would do a captain's match. And it was just a match of all the captains. We would make up two teams. And uh, and it was fun for about four innings. And then, and then the captains turned on the intensity. Uh, and wanted to beat each other. And the only punishment for the match was you had to, you had to be an umpire for a match over the weekend. Yeah. Uh, and there were, you know, so many games that they had plenty to choose from. Uh, cause we had like 35 teams or something like that. Mm-hmm. 37 was the one year where we were like the biggest thing ever, according to Guinness, 37. but I did not ever ask them. They yeah. had no, nothing to do with it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, in, Talking to Paul Hunkley, I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with Paul Hunkley. He's a nice Michigan. guy, yeah. yeah. He, he said that he couldn't remember where, but there was a reference to beer at bases. So I had put beer at third base. And if you stopped at third base, you got a beer. And, it, and I was able to get away with it because it was historically accurate. Now you're telling me, is there something in your book? Yes. I'm going to come across that has beer and bases. Yes. Yes. It was a game between Centralia and Salem, which is Southern Illinois down South of I-70. Uh, and a guy from a guy from uh, Centralia wanted to encourage uh, the Centralia players to really beat up on Salem. And <laughs> so he says, okay, I'm going to have a bucket of beer at third base and everybody that gets to third base and have a swig of beer. And we know they were doing it because in, 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 in a recollection, decades later, uh, one of the players said, yeah, we got the third base a lot, except as the game went on, we sort of lost track of a few things. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we know of at least one, we can document one instance uh, where there was a bucket of beer at third base. Oh. So I was told if it can be documented, documented once, then it, then people cannot stop me from doing it. <laughs> just like the white shoes Rudy wears once in a while, just like sliding, <laughs> just like a fair foul. Uh, because Rudy's my friend uh, and the co-host of this show, Bob, okay. the fair foul. Okay, no. The fair oh, foul. Here we go. Here. <laughs> Don't Tell engage. Tell me about the fair foul. It's a trap. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that's that's another thing. That you would, you know, it's interesting. The things that we're desperately interested in today, they didn't give a hoot about in the 18s. So there's, you know, no, no mention of stealing in these in Illinois again. I'm not talking about the East Coast. That's a whole different story. Illinois, no mentions, and I can't recall anything about a fair foul. What we would call a fair foul hit. I'm sure it happened because you know it happens by accident in our game. Uh, I think, I don't know how it is in, in Michigan or Ohio, it's sort of been uh, blocked by peer pressure in Illinois. It's considered poor form if you do that <laughs> on, on purpose. Because there are people, as you guys know, who can do that uh, all day 
and you'll never get them out. Uh, your point, well, okay, so you've proven you can do it. Great. You know, uh, <laughs> go ahead and go to first base. Don't even bother to swing at the ball. But yeah, there's nothing. I, I, I now somebody might, you might, Morris is the, that I'm aware of, is the only one who's done a detailed study of the state from top to bottom. He had a book on Michigan, Baseball Fever, his first book, Baseball Fever in early Michigan. You have to go through a lot of newspapers and maybe, maybe in Indiana or maybe, you know, in Iowa or they had, they had a big to-do one day about the, the fair foul thing. Uh, but, it, you know, not in Illinois. Well, here in the Midwest, we like to lick the, the tears of our victims. So we like to complain about everything here in the Midwest. Uh, so, yes, you are correct when you say fair follow just happens. It just happens. So you can't say that somebody didn't come along because people, they're smart people, too, in the world. You, you can't tell me somebody didn't come along and say, oh, I'm just going to do that. And uh, like Rudy and hit it towards families. <laughs> and I have no conscience about it. <laughs> oh, gets my first base now, every time. now, Big Bat might have done that, but I can't imagine a Prius did. <laughs> oh, I, I love Big Bat. I'm just kidding. I know. I love Big I Bat, too. Big Bat, too. <laughs> uh, so we don't want you to give too much of your, your book away. We're trying to sell books around here, people. It's Ballas, Dead Beats, and Muffins. You can pre-order on Amazon. Uh, Bob, go ahead and tell everybody again this uh, this deal at this website or whatever. Well, it would be through the U of I Press website, and that's really the fastest because they're 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 mailing them out right now. I mean, people have ordered them there; they got it. So go to the University of Illinois Press; they got a big page, and just do a search under Robert D. Sampson, and it should pop up. Now, I have got to find; I don't have it handy. I should have written this thing down, and I can't go to my Facebook now. But uh, the uh, uh, well, maybe just a second here. Uh, it takes you take too long. Uh, I can get that code. There's a oh, you can you can go look for it, Bob. We can fill space. We're trained professionals. Pull up your Facebook. Let's get the the right information. When when we were interviewing the Champagne Clippers before you came on. Oh yeah, yeah. They actually had a copy of your book and were showing it off in the Zoom. Uh, oh. So I believe on July twenty. Nope, July 15th, you're going to see them, gentlemen, on the field. I would assume they're going to expect some sort of autograph. Oh, okay. Well, that's nice of them, man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're uh, they're, they're a like... good bunch of guys, as you know. Uh, they're, uh, let's see here. They're, 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 they're... Uh, oh, yeah, we I just met them tonight for the first time, and they are they are definitely against being called the Champagne Clippers, which I yeah, have an issue with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're trying to make champagne. it fancy. I appreciate the. I'm sure they appreciate <laughs> Theater. the effort. Theater. Theater. <laughs> I will find her just in a minute. Uh, oh. She sent me this thing uh, a couple of days ago. It was really easy to find. Literally went to Google, typed in the University of Illinois Press, and typed uh, went into the search bar, typed Bob Sampson, got it right here. It's all set and ready to go. Yeah, it's just the... Uh, it's just the... Uh... Uh, while he's looking for that, Rudy, did you see the pictures released yesterday? Uh, drone footage from the Field of Dreams site where they've begun building. I did. I, I did, and then oh, it, no. you know... It made me very thankful for having the experience back in 2015 
back when it was just only the field. No major league ballpark, nothing else, just the field and the corn. It made me uh, nostalgic for that and then a little sad. Yeah, that was the night we took our relationship to the next step. We were like two ships passing in the cornfield. <laughs> and then All we right, met. Family audience out here, guys. We became more than just baseball friends. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. Uh, uh, do you remember how when it went from dusk uh, to nighttime, how you couldn't see the ball and you were taking your own life into your hands because of you heard the crack of the bat and you didn't see the ball in your. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't anticipate the ball not staying white, and <laughs> you know we're like, oh, it, it was a little. The ground, the grass was a little wet, so anytime yeah. that it came out to the outfield and then it rolled through the infield, we were. Just, it was. <laughs> we heard it. We're like, just be ready. <laughs> okay, here's the code. Played... All right, go ahead. Yeah. Now, it, when you order it, now this is only good on March 30th, 31st, and April 1st, just three days. But the code is OAH23. OAH23. Yeah. yeah. So if you order it, well, I guess that would be uh, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. Can't get it before, you can't get it after, but those three days you can get it. So, uh, so last day of last day of the good deal is April first. What a joke, Bob! Yeah, best yeah. April Fool's joke you've ever pulled on somebody. I have no control over the review <laughs> of my press. Have you ever pulled an April Fool's joke on somebody? Yeah, but I can't remember. <laughs> I think you know, pulled something. You know, put something up on Facebook or uh, uh, said my some of my old newspaper columns are April Fool's joke, but they appeared year round. So they didn't, uh, didn't make much of it. Uh, so like I said, we don't want to give too much of the book away because we want everybody to go in there. You already gave me my piece about the beer on the bases. So you get, yes, you, you sold me on the book and uh, <laughs> we hope everybody goes and, and supports this project and uh, in every project, it's amazing how many interviews we do where there's people that have something like a book or they've actually done a jazz album or they've done this or they've done that. It's amazing uh, how many of these we come across. Obviously, you're well known in the vintage community, Robert, and uh, we appreciate you coming on and talking to us, but I want you to... I'm going to give you this opportunity. I'm going to give you the floor. I want you to sell your book. Sell that book to everybody. Get them to buy it, Bob. Well, it has nice pictures. We got some We got some nice pictures. You know, that's an amazing thing. Maybe it's different in Ohio or Michigan. You can count the number of images that exist of baseball on one hand. There's, a, there's, a, there's an individual player. There's two or three team pictures, and that's it. Yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time looking for that. But there are some nice ones and also some people who are missing the book. We do have pictures of them, including a guy who wrote a very hilarious uh, article about trying to play baseball. His name was Rick Pomeroy. Uh, he was a, a humorist at that time. So people will enjoy it. There's, there's a lot of humor in it. Uh, most of it intentional, some of it unintentional because of my writing. But other than that, you know. Uh, I think the thing that will surprise surprise me was the amount of gambling and the trouble 
the gambling cause. Uh, and that was one of the other factors that sort of uh, played into it. Now, I I suppose I, it's probably suppose it's probably, true. probably true in Michigan as well as Ohio and Illinois uh, that towns have rivalries. Mm-hmm. You know, well, we don't like those people from uh, uh, Boonville. You know, they're you know, and these uh, certainly you have them in sports, right? High school football, basketball. Well, that was one of the things that started to develop there. Uh, because these towns at this time in Illinois are competing are competing commercially, but they're also competing to get railroads because they're expanding the railroads like crazy uh, throughout the state. Uh, and so these baseball teams, there's no there's no team sports. There's nothing that we would call a spectator sport until this point. Uh, hey, we've got this new club. We beat beat this other town, you know, and one of them, uh, there's a place uh Jerseyville, a little place in southwest Illinois, kept trying to put together these teams and beat their neighbor to the north, a place called Carrollton. No reason you should know that. But they failed three times, and finally Carrollton, the editor of the newspaper, had well, they should know better uh, to expect to beat a to, to expect to beat a team from a high class city uh, when they're from a little country town that nobody knows where it's at, type of thing. And so it became very, very uh, hard, uh, very antagonistic. Oh. Another thing that I learned through the book, researching it, which I think will come as a surprise to most people, is the importance of railroads and rivers. And I should have I should have brought it down here. It wouldn't show up too well, but I have there's a picture of it in the book. If I took these little stick pins and I put them every place there was a team, or all the teams or most of them are on there, and they track the rail lines and the rivers. And there's big chunks of the state that don't have anything because they don't have any railroads or rivers. And I only found one or two teams that actually got in a wagon and went across country to play somebody else. And they actually then complained about how, you know, we were in this, imagine being in a, in a wooden wagon. There's no seats just sitting on the back of the floor in the middle of the summer driving, you know, four or five hours across the prairie and then getting off and playing baseball and then, getting back in the wagon and going, uh, there's really no road. So, you know, there's lots of interesting things. And it, it, the other thing about it is, though it's about baseball, it's also sort of a social history. You know, what were the times like? What was going on in these towns? You know, one of these towns had a hog stampede. Yeah, <laughs> it was the last time you heard about a town that had a hog stampede. Uh, uh, you had people uh, offering bear meat that was shot locally. I mean, there were bears running around in Southern Illinois, uh, hogs and dogs and their, and cows running around the streets at all hours of the day and night causing trouble and cats <laughs> too. So uh, there's these, and to me, that's sort of what makes history interesting are these little touches that we can sort of reach through that curtain we can never quite get there, but we can sort of sense off the tip of our fingers the past and what life was like, you know, what what it was like to get up in the morning when you got these roosters in everybody's backyard, you know, hawking uh, and without air conditioning. Imagine, you know, we're, how could how did they survive? Well, they obviously did. Uh, you know, all those things that was part of their daily life and some and comes out in these stories or these newspapers. And so you can feel, hopefully. Uh, hey, I'm sort of there. I can, 
I can I can understand this now when they talk about a hot day uh, and uh, the effect that has on play. Uh, oh, OK, I've been there. I can, you know, but we get to go back to a nice get in an air conditioned car or go back to an air conditioned home. They had to put up with it till the heat wave broke, which might be, you know, weeks or months. So I think that's that, you know, that's sort of the scattershot thing. But uh, I think people will enjoy, hopefully, sort of the local local color, the local touches of these towns, some of which no longer exist on a map. Uh, places that had teams that are just, there's nothing there. I suppose there's a soybean field or a corn field or, or something. But but at one time, they were thriving communities. And they, like any other thriving community, by God, we got to have a ball team. Let's get one. And they did. Uh, that still happens today. If you have a thriving community, you have to have multiple ball teams from multiple sports. Rudy, do you have anything for Bob before we get him out of here with uh, giving him the old pepper? Um, no, honest. I just, it's such a, a treat to get to chat with you. I, um, I encourage anybody attending the, the conference, uh, coming up the VBBA conference to, to stop by. Um, do you know what time, when you, are you presenting what time? I think it's around 11 o'clock on Saturday, April Fool's Day. <laughs> Fantastic. I think that, I think I think it's a, a an, an amazing opportunity, and I love that we just spoke to a team, uh, some gentlemen who want to form a new team, and you were that resource for them, so they didn't have to go through hours and hours and days and days and years and years of microfish and 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 you know spending time in the stacks and in museums and and libraries that you're doing such a service to the community i think it's amazing so thank you so much well rudy could you do a favor for me yeah i think one time i was at muffin meadow and i was pitching and uh big bat hit one of my pitches and could you see if that thing ever came down is it all in the fairgrounds or is that the cap state capital i would just like to know where that ball finally landed that's all <laughs> There are still sightings of it to this day. People stay, they look up and they see it going across the sky. Uh, Bob, you are uh, great. Obviously, if you're if your writing is anything like your communication skills, uh, everybody is in for a treat uh, when they get ballas, deadbeats, and muffins. But don't forget that one copy of John L's O'Sullivan and his times that one copy only one person can have it you don't know if you're ever going to see that again maybe I better buy uh, so it yeah. <laughs> maybe you should be the one to buy sold it. Out. Uh, uh, Robert I'm sure you're way too smart to listen to the episodes of this podcast but if you ever listen to the end we do a segment before we get people out called giving you the old pepper and they're just very quick questions with very quick answers I didn't do it. Okay. <laughs> Obvious, obviously, you're a man that knows his Irish history. Can you tell us an Irish stereotype that is very true and one that is not true at all? Uh, drinking, very true. High rates of alcoholism in Ireland, and you know, uh, maybe not so much today, but certainly in the past. Uh, fighting over not not so true you know oh okay uh, 
Uh, where is the best place to play vintage baseball currently in Illinois, in your opinion? Uh, our home field, uh, indicator, beautiful troll ball field. Because it's sort of like, it's close to what you would have seen at the time. Just an open field. We don't have the options. We, we used to talk about maybe we should build a tower out in center field. I think maybe Rudy's been there. Uh, I know he's, yeah, and it's just, you know, it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. But there are many fine fields. Uh, that's just the one I prefer the most. What is your next book going to be about? Uh, 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 tips on base running. Tips on base running. <laughs> it's going to be a think, bestseller. I don't think at my age there's another book. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh, what was the first concert you ever went to? Oh, boy. Probably at uh, Eastern Illinois University. And I think it was Chad and Jeremy or Peter and Gordon. I always get those those two groups mixed up. And I remember it was very nice. Uh, when I was in high school and it was sort of a big deal to drive over there and go to a concert. How many geese do you think it would take to kill a crocodile? Uh, depends on how fat they were when they choked it, I guess. So my oh. take What is the name of the teddy bear behind you in the chair? Oh. <laughs> oh. I think it's got it has like honey on it. Yeah. That's a long story. That thing goes way back. Uh, we're going to get that story later in the future. When we see you and when we see you in person, we're asking you about the teddy bear. Uh, What was, yes. What was the first car you ever had? Oh, I love that car. It was a used 1962 Volkswagen Beetle. It was sort of like a, a pea green, uh, sort of looked like, you know, uh, five day old lemonade. (laughs) But I love that car. I love that car. Wish I could get it back. <laughs> I recently found out on my 23andMe that I did that I was originally told I was mostly Hungarian, but it turns out I'm mostly Irish. What's the first thing I should do? Uh, keep away from the booze. <laughs> okay. I deliver beer. I was about to say. Uh, <laughs> no, you, you, you deliver it. <laughs> This don't <laughs> uh, Bob, what is your favorite baseball movie? Oh, I uh, I would say one that people haven't know about too much. Uh, Bang the Drum Slowly. It's a great book. That guy was a fan. Mark Harris. If you if you want to read great baseball fiction, you guys probably already have that series uh, based on that pitcher who's sort of the main character. I, I've read those things two or three times. They're fantastic. What is the first book you ever read? I think it was a biography of Teddy Roosevelt when I was probably about seven or eight years old. A little kid's, you know, biography of Teddy Roosevelt. If you could have one condiment shoot out of your belly button all the time, what <laughs> condiment would it be? <laughs> <laughs> Well, so that would be something like salt, pepper, mustard, ketchup. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> you can only pick one. Okay. Yeah. You only uh, got one belly button. I guess mustard. <laughs> All right. Uh, and last question is uh, you're obviously a historian and a baseball lover. 
give me your Mount Rushmore of your personal favorite baseball players, your four favorite baseball players of all time. Oh, all time. Oh, uh, Christy Matthewson. Uh, you know, that would be one. Stan Usual, who I actually old enough to see saw play, so I'm play uh, a couple of times. Uh, who else? Uh, on the uh, laughing Larry Doyle from the Chicago from the Saint, uh, New York Giants, who said it's great to be young in a giant. So that's three, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. Brock, who I did see play. There you go. And uh, a great ball player, uh, but no offense, a miserable excuse for a human being. That, that includes a lot of ball players. <laughs> but, but maybe Pete Rose. Yeah, he's kind of a jerk. That's what I've learned about Pete Rose. I've never met him, but he doesn't seem like a very nice person. Is he getting into the Hall of Fame after he passes on, Bob? Never, I don't get no, never. Eh. Well, that's just Bob. Maybe he may get in. I don't know. Well, that's who we're talking to. <laughs> you're somewhat of a, you're so, you've got an important voice. Uh, so we'll take that and we'll run with it. Pete, you're never getting in. Sorry. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Robert Sampson. You were amazing. Uh, this was worth the wait. I knew it was. I knew it was a good get back when we very first talked about it. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a good interview. You you did not disappoint. You were amazing. Uh, you brought a lot of history and common sense to this podcast. And I don't know whether to say thank you or or to be scared of what everyone's going to think of when they hear this. <laughs> <laughs> They're not used to that level of knowledge. <laughs> uh Rudy, why don't you uh, say what you got to say to Bob and then get uh, get us out of here. But then I want you to stay on. So Absolutely. Uh, Bob, I wish you uh, safe travels and all the uh, all the best in your VBBA presentation. Uh, and, you know, for the barrel roller and droopy drawers, I'm the Swamp Fox telling you to keep it station to station. And I'll see you out in the field. Thank you, guys. Been great. Thanks, Bob. Peace out, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs> um, holy cow, Rudy, that was good. Hey, you know you know what this means, right? It's all downhill from here because that was just I mean, great. I mean, that, that act absolutely raises the bar that I'm not trying to raise. Yeah. <laughs> we can't we can't meet that expectation. Don't raise that bar. No. What? <laughs> you know, you know it's a good inter you know it's a good uh conversation, a good guest when you just want to shut up and listen. Like I did not want him to give away too much because he we're trying to sell a book here. He has a presentation that people are gonna go see, pay to go see on Saturday. I I was just like, man, I could listen to him talk and tell stories for for hours. <laughs>